Take your Bible, turn to the book of Jonah, would you? The book of Jonah in the Word of God. And I so am thankful. I'm so thankful for the privilege that he's given me to be here through these days. And our family, we've just enjoyed it. We've enjoyed it so very much. We've heard so much, uh, so many good things. And of course, we've been a part of the midwinter retreats before. But to be able to be here has been a great refreshing blessing to us. And we thank you. I want to uh, thank you uh, for those of you that have uh, just done some kind acts to- for us and-, and shown some kindness to us. We appreciate that so very much. Pastor, thank you for allowing me to come and, and give up your pulpit. Someone said, greater love hath no pastor than this, than that he lay down his pulpit for another. And uh, I believe that, and I thank you so very much for it. It's a great honor. We've enjoyed so much the fellowship and the renewed acquaintances, and uh, we look forward to uh, we look forward to seeing what God will do as a result of our time together this week. And you know, I, I'm not aiming in the meeting for just something to happen in the meeting. I want something to happen every place that I go. And I'm always wondering, could I have done more? What could I have said differently? How could I have given an invitation that would be more effective? And what could I have said in such a way that would be a great help? But the truth is, is that I'm not aiming for just what happens in the meeting. I'm praying that God will do something in such a marvelous and miraculous way that it will happen long after the meeting is done. And sometimes I'll call the pastor two or three weeks later or four weeks later and say, how's it going and how's this person doing and has that person come back? And and, uh, that's just so needed and such such a necessary thing in our our world. And so I'm praying that God will continue to do his great work. I hope you'll go by the table on the way out. There are several items, some prayer cards. I especially want you to grab one of those. We, we want you to grab some tracks, but we'd like you to get some track packs if you want. They're just for a minimal price for 100 tracks. And, and uh, we've got plenty of them back there, and I can only have a certain amount of weight in my trailer. So it would be a blessing if you keep me under weight limit and uh, just get some tracks and buy them. Christmas time is coming up. Thanksgiving is coming up. These are holiday seasons, and this is the absolute easiest time in the whole wide world to give out gospel tracts. I saw a pastor uh, call for the seven for heaven and uh, give out gospel tracts. That is great. I got all mine given out a couple days ago, and I praise the Lord for that. That is just great. So when you give out gospel tracts in the holiday season, you'll have to say happy holidays, happy holidays, happy Thanksgiving, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. You can go from now, literally, from right now, every day, all the way through the new year, three or four days after the new year and say, and say happy holidays and God will work in a mighty way. And uh, I just wonder what could happen if everybody in this church took a seven for heaven. They have to re- increase the budget for tracks. That's a blessing. We ought to fill all of this area with gospel tracks for the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and that sometimes opens up doors and that sometimes uh, gives out opportunities. So I want to encourage you along those lines, but especially pray for us, especially pray for us. There, there are other books and other things. I think there's some sermon uh, thumb drives that are back there as well, but we more than anything else in this whole wide world, we need God's people to pray. I hope that you'll pray that God will keep us safe, that he'll keep us on the road, that he'll keep our eyes on Jesus. And uh, we're just uh, so incredibly grateful to the Lord for that. Glad to have my in-laws here tonight, Ron and Pat Capel, and glad to have uh, the Holberts here from over in Alexandria. We're so grateful for that. And I hope that uh, you'll continue to seek the Lord over through the rest of this year. And let's ask the Lord right now just to help us as we get into his word. Shall we, Father? Thank you for the privilege that you've given to us to open up this precious book again. And Lord, we just want to say right now, we believe every single word in this book to be true. And Lord, we believe it to be sufficient. It's enough. Lord, in a world that clamors for attention and clamors for for praise, and many times it's just empty and shallow, 
we know that this book rises above as the answer and the standard. And Lord, we ask that this book would change us tonight. Lord, that this book would challenge us. I pray that you'd fill me with your spirit and help me as I preach to only preach what you would have me say and nothing else. In Jesus' precious name, amen. It was 1973, and Roe v. Wade had just been passed in the early part of the year. And a lady who had already four kids in the home, one was almost 10, had, had just discovered that she was pregnant. She was expecting her number five. And in the course of all of that, they moved, the family did, from Wyoming to Indiana. And in all of her doctor's visits, because Roe v. Wade had passed and because she was 40 years old, the doctors asked her if she was considering an abortion. Now, in fairness, she did struggle with the fact that now she is pregnant and she has four kids already at home. But she said to the doctor, absolutely not. Her name is Doris Smith. And she's my mom. And I was number five. And since 1973, there have been almost 70 million babies, innocent children, aborted in this country. It's staggering. Staggering beyond imagination. And yet here we are. I would never have thought that last year we would see Roe v. Wade turn back to the states, and I'm so thankful that it has been. And I pray that someday it will be eradicated altogether, the scourge that it is from this, t- this country. But not just abortion, but immorality has risen at an epic rate so that the sexual revolution is now bearing its poisonous fruit. And it's almost a country that is unrecognizable from just three or four decades ago. Some of you remember when you would allow your children to go play up and down the street in the neighborhood without even thinking about it, but not so today. We have had such a massive impact by feminism and humanism in this country so that masculinity is under attack at every level and a man is not supposed to be what he ought to be and what God made him to be and a woman is not supposed to be what she should be and what she can be and what God made her to be. And this country has gone down into the gutter in more ways than one. And sometimes, as I travel this country and go from church to church and state to state, I ask myself this question, what can save America? What can save America? Now, I don't know. I don't know if great revival in our lives will impact America on a broad scale. I believe that it can, and I'm praying that it will. But I'm simply saying, I don't know that I have some kind of guarantee to give you tonight from the Bible, but I believe with all of my heart that revival can happen, and I'm praying with all of my heart that revival will happen. A preacher friend of mine who is now a pastor in Ohio said years ago he was golfing with some preachers and they were at a a home down south and, and they were there for the board meeting and as they were golfing, these two evangelists, shame of all shames, said that there's no hope for America. There's Put a fork in it. She's done. Now, with all due respect, I don't know anything about those preachers, but I will say this. They either 
need to get down on their knees and ask God's forgiveness or get out of the ministry. Because as long as there is a God in heaven, there is hope. There is hope to change an individual life. And hear me, if there is hope enough to change an individual life, there is hope to change a nation. And so I want to ask the question tonight, what can save America? And I want to answer it from the book of Jonah. Now in Jonah, the Bible tells us that the Lord, the Lord spoke to his servant. Notice verse 1. It says, Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. Now the wickedness of Nineveh was legend. They would rather kill you than look at you. And if they invaded your city or your nation or your people, they would sometimes slaughter the children or have the children slaughter the parents so that they would have terror in their heart and never again, never again threaten the Ninevites. They would sometimes take their victims and line them up, impaling them, lighting them on fire so that they could be human torches for the highways. They would do things that, that I could not speak of and would not speak of in mixed company to their victims, and their terror spread far and wide across the plains. And the Scripture says that God told Jonah to go to Nineveh and cry against it. Now, Nineveh had been, Jonah had been a prophet before. In fact, Jonah had prophesied good to Israel and Samaria, and it had come to pass. And Jonah was somewhat of a hero in his day because of the way God had used his prophecy and fulfilled it and answered it. And it's one thing when God says for you to prophesy good. It's another thing when God says cry against it. That's what he's asking Jonah to do. Now let's put this in perspective. It would be like God calling some man or preacher in this day or in this place to go to Iran, Lebanon, Gaza, and preach against Hezbollah, ISIS, and Hamas. You say, well, preacher, when you put it that way, it sheds new light. Now, there are volunteers aplenty to go to some of these places and kill the terrorists. But would there be any volunteers tonight to raise their hand and go preach against the terrorists? That's what God is asking Jonah to do. It makes a little bit more sense then when you read verse number 3. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Sometimes we laugh at Jonah for fleeing from the presence of the Lord because those of us that are astute theologians know that's not even a possibility. Uh, God said in the book of Psalms, Whither shall, the psalmist said, Whither shall I flee from thy presence? Whither shall I flee from thy spirit? Whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, Surely the darkness shall cover me, yea, the night shall be light about me. For the darkness hideth not from thee, the darkness and the light are both alike to thee. 
And that is exactly what Jonah is doing. He's trying to flee from the presence of the Lord. Why? Because the Lord said, go cry against the terrorists. Go cry and preach against the sinners, uh, those that will impale their enemies, dip them in hot oil, light them on fire, and use them for human torches. No, we don't want you to go uh, sign up for an army and go fight. We want you to go preach. We want you to go right there and wag your bony finger. You know it's necessary to be called. You can't have a, a call to preach unless you've got a bony finger. And it's necessary for Jonah to go wag his bony finger under the nose of these wicked, wicked people in Nineveh and preach against their sin. Jonah said, uh-uh. And in a crazed panic, he rose up to flee the opposite direction to Tarshish, verse number 3. It says, and he found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken. Then the mariners were afraid and cried every man unto his God and cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it of them. But Jonah was gone down in the sides of the ship and he lay and was fast asleep. Wow, think of that. In his crazed panic, he now is exhausted and he goes down into the bottom of the boat and he falls asleep and the rocking of the boat doesn't wake him. It just only lulls him further into a deep sleep and the waves hitting up against the boat don't wake him and the cries of the seamen on the ship's deck, they don't wake him until finally the shipmaster comes down and shakes him a bit and says, what meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, arise and call upon thy God, verse number six, so the shipmaster came to him and said unto him, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God, if so be that God will think upon us that we perish not. And they said every one to his fellow, Come and let us cast lots, that we may know for whose cause this evil is upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell upon Jonah. Then said they unto him, Tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause this evil is upon us. What is thine occupation, and whence comest thou? What is thy country, and of what people art thou? Pastor, whenever I read verse number 8, I think about filling out a customs form to go into another country. Now, coming back into America, you just go, and they have facial recognition, and you have a screen in front of you, and it's pretty simple. But in some countries, still, they have you fill out a customs form, and they fill your, you, have, you fill your name out with, with each letter in each box, and you come to the question, what is your occupation? And I have to fill out E, V, A, N, G. It's really long. It's not something simple like uh, a, a pastor. But anyway, I have to fill it out, evangelist, evangelist. And I think to myself, what if I fill this out, and what if I fill this out, and I've just lost my testimony in front of the customs agent? Well, that's exactly what Jonah was doing. He said, what, what is thine occupation? He said, prophet. Uh, whence comest thou, Israel? What is thy country? And of what people art thou? The Jews, and he said unto them, I am in Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. Then were the men exceedingly afraid, and said unto him, Why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then said they unto him, What shall we do unto thee, that the sea may be calm unto us? For the sea wrought and was tempestuous. And he said unto them, Take me up. And cast me forth into the sea. So shall the sea be calm unto you, for I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. 
Nevertheless, the men rode hard to bring it to the land. Even these pagans didn't like the idea of sacrificing Jonah to this great tempest. Verse number 13, it says, The men rode hard to bring it to the land, but they could not, for the sea wrought and was tempestuous against them. Wherefore they cried unto the Lord and said, We beseech thee, O Lord, we beseech thee, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not upon us innocent blood, for thou, O Lord, hast done as it pleased thee. So they took up Jonah. Jonah and cast him forth into the sea, and the sea ceased from her raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord and made vows. Now, praise God, these men turned to the Lord as a result of this experience, but it's something sad and something pitiful and such a contrast to see Jonah's carnality and these pagan idol worshippers' sincerity. Jonah's, Jonah's lack of urgency for the Lord and lack of obedience to the Lord and their, their willingness and full of obedience to the Lord. Notice verse 17. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah three days and three nights fully, fully furnished stay in an Airbnb under the sea. <laughs> and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now I'm asking the question tonight, what can save America? And I wonder what the answer to that question is. I wonder what the answer to that question is in your heart and your mind. What can save America? Is there any hope for this land that has turned its back on God and in so many levels and on so many ways they have, they have lifted their fist and flaunted it, their, their pride and their wickedness in the face of God. Is there any hope for this country? What can save America? Is it possible? Well, I want to present to you three solutions that are all intertwined and necessary to each other, and I want you to see them right from the book of Jonah. Number one, what can save America? Number one, a return to Bible precept. Number one, a return to Bible precept. And I want you to listen to the order of this. I'm not talking about we need to return to Bible precept in the high offices of the land, though I believe we do. I'm not talking about we need to return to Bible precept by introducing the, the Bible back in the public school, although I believe we do. I'm talking about a return to Bible precept beginning with you and me. There is no sense, ladies and gentlemen, of even talking about of griping about, of even worrying about it at this level or that level in the schools or in the Congress when we, right here, God's people, won't do it. Who wasn't doing it in Jonah? God's people. The prophet. The preacher. So instead of us shining the mirror towards everybody else, I'm, I'm honestly convinced that very few people even own a mirror anymore. You say, why? Because when the preacher gets up to preach and we're all supposed to, with open face, look into the looking glass of God's word with all sincerity, we're not. This is the way some people look at the mirror of God's word when the preacher's preaching. Ooh. Hits them right between the eyes. I believe most preachers that are Bible preachers like your pastor, they're hitting people right between the eyes and even better, right in the heart. And, and they, ooh, ooh, 
that, that was uncomfortable. So they'll take the mirror and they'll go like this to their husband. Or they'll go like this to their wife. Or they'll go like this to their kids. That's not the way we're supposed to look at the Bible. We're supposed to look at the Bible like this. This book shows me me. And there's enough problems that are clearly delineated in this book that mirror problems in my life that if I'll focus on this and fix those problems with the help of the Holy Spirit, I won't have time to worry about anybody else. You know that? Now, I want to say this just as a parenthesis. If you're in a marriage and you're constantly trying to fix your spouse, good luck. First of all, that's not your job. Now, it is your job as a husband to lead and to love your wife and to teach the Word of God and to guide her and encourage her, but it's not your job to change everybody. Ma'am, it's not your job to change your husband. In fact, some of you that have been trying all your life, how's that working out for you? (laughs) It just doesn't. Now, obviously, we try to encourage and we try to give some counterbalance in our thinking and and we need, need to offer good scripture and point people to the Bible, but when we try to change everybody, that, that doesn't work. But when we say, God, I can't worry about everybody else right now. I've got plenty of my own flaws to take care of in the mirror. And God's word, Lord, would you change me? And we let God, through his word, change me. And then we permeate our family and our home with God's word so that God's word can change everyone where they're at. My, what a transformation takes place. My, what a change takes place. And Jonah here, instead of pointing out at Israel's flaws, instead of pointing out the problems in the government, instead of pointing out Nineveh's flaws, which he's not even, he's not even there yet, you know what he needs? He needs to find a mirror somewhere in that Airbnb. You think you'll find it? Let's look at Jonah chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly. And said, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord. And he heard me out of the belly of hell, cried I. And thou heardest my voice. What has happened? He cried unto the Lord. Do you know what he's doing? He's returning to Bible precept. Verse 3. For thou hast cast me out, cast me into the deep in the midst of the seas. And the floods compassed me about. All thy billows and thy waves passed over me. Then I said, I am cast out of thy sight. Yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. Do you know what he's doing? He's returning to Bible precept. If I were you, I would underline verse number four, I will look again toward thy holy temple. You say, preacher, why? Because he is obeying 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14. He says, yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. Well, what's that? 2 Chronicles chapter 6, Solomon prayed when he dedicated the temple, and he said, Lord, let this be a place where your name is, and where your honor is, and where your glory is, and we're going to sacrifice to you today, and we're going to dedicate this temple, but oh Lord, if we ever turn away from you, and go into sin, and you have to send the pestilence, or the sword, or famine, or peril, and we are taken away into captivity, oh Lord, wherever we're at, if we'll turn to you, and we'll pray, and seek your face, and turn from our wicked ways, would you hear from heaven and forgive our sin and heal our land? And do you know what God says in 2 Chronicles 7 and verse 14? To Solomon, he says, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. 
So guess what? Throughout the Old Testament, you had people that took that promise up and took God's promise. And that's what revival is. It's simply coming to God's promises, claiming them as yea and amen, believing that is a covenant-keeping God and that he will not break his promise. So in 2 Chronicles 20, when Moab, Ammon, and Mount Seir come down against Jehoshaphat, do you know what Jehoshaphat does? He declares a fast, gathers the people of Judah before the temple, and cries out and reminds the Lord of the promise he gave to Solomon in 2 Chronicles 7. Do you know what Daniel does when he's in captivity? He opens his windows and kneels down on his knees and prays three times a day towards Jerusalem. What's he doing? Taking God at his word, 2 Chronicles 7, 14. And here Jonah says, yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. Now, can anybody tell me how he knows which way to look? He's in the belly of a fish, a great fish. And the Bible says, yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. He doesn't have a compass. He doesn't have a smartphone. He can't flip on a light. He can't light a lighter. He doesn't have any of that. But you know, I don't think the Lord is so interested in his actual direction that he's praying as much as it is the posture of his heart. And in verse number four, he says, yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. The waters come past me about even to the soul. The depth closed me round about, for weeds were wrapped about my head. I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever. Yet hast thou brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. In other words, God saved him from death and dying. Verse seven, when my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came into thee, into thine holy temple. They... Read verse number 8 carefully. It's a preaching verse. Look at it. It says, They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. Some preacher needs to take that text and shuck the corn. I mean, that's a powerful verse. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. What was Jonah saying? I've observed lying vanities. The empty vanity of believing that I could disobey God and get away with it. The empty vanity of believing and the lying vanity of believing that I could flee from the presence of the Lord. The empty vanity that somehow I could go away from his presence and and it not bother me. That I could avoid his chastening hand and his corrective hand in my life. The empty vanity that I could disobey God. Here, the empty vanity that, that I don't need to follow God. I got his blessing earlier on. He fulfilled a prophecy that I predicted years ago, and that's good. The empty vanity of resting on your laurels. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. Verse 9, but I will sacrifice unto thee with a voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. Do you know what the whole of chapter 2 is? It is a return to Bible precept. Now, I... There's no way in five days that I can actually cover everything that needs to be covered in the Christian life. And honestly, your pastor can preach 150 messages or more throughout a year and come to the end of the year and say, there's no way that I can cover everything that needs to be covered. There's no way that one person can meet the need by picking a topic and by addressing a subject of every single person here. And many times at the end of a week-long meeting or however long the meeting goes, I'll come and say, I didn't hit this. I wish I'd have covered that a little bit more. I wish I'd have hit that. But you know what? I don't have to worry about it. You know why? Because when the Word of God is opened and preached and unleashed and the Spirit of God begins to move in people's hearts, He's dealing with you exactly where you're at. Now, how is He dealing with you? 
Maybe you haven't decided you're going to go the opposite direction of Nineveh, but maybe you're not being the husband that you ought loving and caring for your wife as Christ cared for the church. Maybe you're not running from God, but maybe you're not submitting to your husband. Maybe you're not uh, running from God and getting on a ship and paying the fare thereof and going to sleep while the pagans cry out to their own gods, but you're disregarding your parents and acting as if they're the dirt on this floor and rebelling against them in your heart, if not in your actions and attitude. Maybe, maybe you're not disregarding God like Jonah did, but you're disregarding God in some other way. There will not be revival until you decide you're going to go back to the Bible and obey it. That's the only way it begins. Revival begins with the individual. It doesn't begin with the masses. It begins with the individual. Religion focuses on the masses. God focuses on the individual. He came to the individual, Saul, and said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? He came to the woman at the well and cried, called her to himself. He came to, the, he came to Jarius' daughter. He came to, he, he came to Peter and to, to his brother Andrew and said, follow me. God is a God of the individual. And you said, preacher, don't you want the masses to be reached? Absolutely. But how about we just start with ourselves? How about we begin there? Gypsy Smith said, if you really want revival, go home, get a piece of chalk, draw a circle on the floor, get down on your knees inside that circle and say, God, send revival to everybody in this circle. Well, that's a good place to start. And if every single person would do that, then we would have a revival. I believe that God can send a revival to an individual. I believe he can send it to a marriage. I believe he can send a revival to a family. I believe he can send it to a, a, a church body. I believe he can send it to an area. But it's starts with the individual and Jonah needs to take care of himself what's Jonah going to do as calling for prayer to come back in the schools in the belly of a fish well what good is it going to be for Jonah to stand there watching CNN and Fox News and muttering oaths under his breath at all the terrible things that are going on in the world what good is that going to do Jonah right here or anybody else for that matter what good is it for Jonah to, to, to he's going to have to do it by absentee ballot because he can't show up in person. But what good is it going to be for Jonah to just vote? How, how's that? I'm for voting. But what good is that going to do if he himself doesn't get right with God? And really, when you stand before God, it's not going to matter what everybody else did. It's going to matter what you did with the truth. And Jonah had to come face to face with, I personally need to get right with God. Young lady, you need to get right with God. Do it tonight. Sir, you need to get right with God. Do it tonight. You're walking at a guilty distance. You're letting some current sweep you away from God and into the swirl of the world. You're, you're, you're walking in materialistic things and pleasures of this life, thinking somehow that satisfies when you know full well it does not satisfy. Come back to God tonight. Why would you wait any longer? Prodigal son, wandering from the Lord or thinking about it, why don't you come back to God tonight before any more damage is done? Do you know, at every single individual case, our sin is solvable through the blood of Jesus Christ. Every single one. And, and to a certain point, it is salvageable. It's avoidable in the first place, sin is. And it's solvable in the second place. But there will come a point in your life, if you continue on in rebellion, and I continue on in my own stubborn way, where there will be a point of no return. And the damage is done. And whatever is done after that will just be limited and handicapped. And there will be no recovery. So why not fix it beforehand? Why not avoid it first? And if we haven't avoided it and we've got up to our elbows or our eyeballs in sin, why not get it right in the second place? Jonah decided he was going to do that.
And you know what I think Jonah understood? You know, whether I ever get out of this fish's belly or not, I just want to be right with God. Number one, a return to Bible precept. Quickly, I want you to notice number two. What can save America? Let's look back at Jonah chapter two. Look at verse number two. He says, then said I, then he says, then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly, verse one. And said, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord. And he heard me. Out of the belly of hell cried I, and thou heardest my voice. Wow. Verse 4, he says, I, I said, I am cast out of thy sight, yet will I, I will look again toward thy holy temple. He comes in verse 7, when my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came in unto thee, into thine holy temple. What can save America? A return to Bible precept. Are you ready? Number two, a renewal of believing prayer. What can save America? A renewal of believing prayer. When God's people say, with the Lord's help, I am going to believe God. And do you know, if you can't believe him or for some reason it's, it's a struggle in your heart to really believe God, why don't you say this, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. I believe that would be a biblical prayer. I believe that would be a prayer that the Lord understands and the Lord would respond to. A return to Bible precept, number one. Number two, a renewal, a renewal of believing prayer. Believing prayer. Lord, would you do this? And would you do it in my life? And would you do it in my heart? And would you do it in my lifetime? And if not in my lifetime, in my children's lifetime? Now, I've been traveling for the last 27 years, almost every year, not quite every year, but almost every year, anywhere from 20 to 45 meetings a year in a different place, traveling from coast to coast, taking a missions trip overseas, and living in a, in a trailer, living in a fifth-wheel trailer. Now, we've got as big as we can carry with this, with this truck, but, but I can tell you, uh, uh, it's just as, as big as it needs to go. And, and, and really, when you get in with your family in a little space of about 400 square feet or whatever it is, it gets small real quick, real quick. You know why we do that? Because I believe that God can do a work in this country now. I believe that God can save this country now. And do you know how? When we really get serious about prayer. Uh, J. Edwin Ord began to study this matter of prayer, and he quoted A.T. Pearson as saying, there has never been a spiritual awakening in any country or a locality that did not begin in united prayer. D.L. Moody said every movement of God can be traced to a kneeling figure. J. Edwin Orr said, let me tell you what God has done through concerted, united, sustained prayer. Bear with me. He said, not many people realize that in the wake of the American Revolution following 1776 to 1781, there was a moral slump. Drunkenness became epidemic. Out of a population of about 5 million, 300,000 were confirmed drunkards. Profanity was of the most shocking kind. For the first time in the history of the American settlement, women were afraid to go out at night for fear of assault. Bank robberies were a daily occurrence. What about the churches? The Methodists were losing more members than they were gaining. The Baptists said they'd had one of their most wintry seasons. The Presbyterians in general assembly deplored the nation's ungodliness. In a typical congregational church, the Reverend Samuel Shepherd of Lenox, Massachusetts, in 16 years had not taken one person into fellowship. 
The Lutherans were so languishing that they discussed uniting with the Episcopalians who were even worse off. The Protestant Episcopal Bishop of New York, Bishop Samuel Provost, quit functioning. He had confirmed no one for so long that he decided he was out of work, so he took up other employment. The Chief Justice of the United States, John Marshall, wrote to the Bishop of Virginia, James Madison, that the church was too far gone to ever be redeemed. Voltaire averred and Tom Paine echoed, Christianity will be forgotten in 30 years. Consider the liberal arts colleges at that time. A poll taken at Harvard had discovered not one believer in the whole student body. They took a poll at Princeton in New Jersey, a much more evangelical place where they discovered only two believers in the student body and only five that did not belong to the filthy speech movement of that day. Students rioted. They held a mock communion at William College. They put on an anti-Christian play at Dartmouth. They burned down the Nassau Hall, which was a chapel and a preaching center at Princeton. They forced the resignation of the president of Harvard. They took a Bible out of a local Presbyterian church in New Jersey and burnt it in a public bonfire. Christians were so few on campus in the 1790s that they met in secret like a communist cell and kept their minutes in code so no one would know it. Right here in the good old days of America. How did the situation change? through a concert of prayer. There was a Scottish Presbyterian preacher in Edinburgh named John Erskine who published a memorial pleading with the people of Scotland and elsewhere to unite in prayer for the revival of religion. He sent one copy of this little book to Jonathan Edwards who was so stirred by it that he wrote a response which grew longer than a letter and he finally published it in a book he entitled, here's the title, A Humble Attempt to Promote Explicit Agreement and Visible Union of All God's People in Extraordinary Prayer for the Revival of Religion and the Advancement of Christ's Kingdom on Earth Pursuant to Scripture Promises and Prophecies. That, that title needs two pages. <laughs> and is not this what is missing in so much of our efforts? Explicit agreement, visible unity, unusual believing prayer. It led and started in Britain through William Carey, this this move of God, and Andrew Fuller and John Sutcliffe. But God was working in 1792 to 1800s, and other leaders who began what the British called the Union of Prayer. Hence, after the year after John Wesley died, the Second Great Awakening began and swept Great Britain. In New England, there was a man of prayer named Isaac Backus, a Baptist preacher, who in 1794, when conditions were at their worst, addressed an urgent plea for prayer for revival to pastors of every denomination that was Christian in the United States. Churches knew their backs were against the wall. All the churches adopted the plan until America, like Britain, was interlaced with a network of prayer meetings which set aside the first Monday of each month to pray. It was not long before revival came. When the revival reached the frontier in Kentucky, it encountered a people really wild and irreligious. Congress had discovered that in Kentucky, there had not been more than one court of justice held in five years. Peter Cartwright, the frontier Methodist evangelist, wrote that when his father had settled in Logan County, it was known as Rogue's Harbor. The decent people in Kentucky formed regiments of vigilantes to fight for law and order, then fought a pitched battle with outlaws and lost. There was a Scottish-Irish Presbyterian preacher named James McGreedy, whose chief claim to fame was that he was so ugly he attracted attention. 
McGreedy settled in Logan County, pastored three little churches, and he wrote in his diary that the winter of 1799, for the most part, was weeping and mourning with the people of God. Lawlessness prevailed everywhere. But McGreedy was such a man of prayer that not only did he promote the concert of prayer every first Monday of the month, he got his people to pray for him at sunset uh, on Sunday, Saturday evening and sunrise on Sunday morning. Then in the summer of 1800 came the great Kentucky Cane Ridge Revival. 11,000 people came to a communion service. McGreedy hollered for help regardless of denomination. Out of that second great awakening came the modern missionary movement and its societies. Out of it came the abolition of slavery, popular education, Bible societies, Sunday schools, and many social benefits accompanying the evangelistic drive. Is there anybody here that's ever heard of the 1858 prayer revival? There you had a lay missionary named Jeremiah Lanfear who was in New York City and he was burdened because there had been an economic downturn and businessmen during the business hours and business days were not concerned about seeking God. They were concerned about increasing their bottom line. So what did he do? He called for a prayer meeting. He had a prayer meeting and bulletin produced and spread out as a handbill so that people would know about it and would come. And he had it on a particular day in the upper room of the consistory building at the Dutch Reformed Church in Manhattan there on Fulton Street. And he got down on his knees to pray and nobody came. He prayed for almost an hour. And at the end of the hour, he heard footsteps up the back hallway and there just a handful of people came. They held it the next week, and there were about 20-some people. They held it the third week, and there were about 50-some people. They held it the fourth week, and there were 95 or so people, and most of them were lost. Then they met daily. Unbeknownst to, to Jeremiah Lanfear, there were concerts of prayer that were going all over the city, and they didn't know it about each other. Well, pretty soon these prayer meetings began to grow and they had to move from that upper room of the Dutch consistory building of the Dutch Reformed Church. They went to some other halls and buildings that could hold the massive swell of people so that when one reporter went to one of these or one, one news mogul sent one of his reporters, he went to several places and he tried to count but he couldn't count all the people. A businessman from Philadelphia came up to New York for business and he heard about the prayer meeting and he went. He was a Christian. He said, we need this in Philadelphia. So he went to Philadelphia and started what we now believe is to be the largest prayer meeting in the history of the Christian church. It didn't just spread from New York to Philadelphia. It went to Pittsburgh. Then it went to Cleveland. Then it went to Chicago. And I used to think that it was only a prayer meeting that affected the northern states. That's not true. It went down to Charleston, South Carolina, and Vicksburg, Mississippi, and went to Memphis, Tennessee, and many other places in the north and the south. That was 1858. Do you know when D.L. Moody was saved? 1857. Do you know what happened just a few years after the 1858 prayer revival? The Civil War. Do you know how many people were saved as a result of the 1858 prayer revival? 5% of the American population. There were 25 million people at the time. 
I wonder if God's people individually got so serious about turning back to the Bible in their own lives and then turning on their knees to believing prayer, not just praying, but believing prayer and saying, God, you can, and God, would you do it now, and God, would you save my loved ones, and God, would you revive my church, and not just my church, but every Bible-preaching church in the, in the greater Washington, D.C. area, and not just our churches, but everyone up in Maryland. Everybody knows the people in Maryland need help, and then, Lord, everyone down into Virginia, and everyone over into Delaware, and Lord, save every, every person, and would you work a miracle? What if 5% of the American population was saved now as a result of believing prayer? That would mean 15 million people would be saved. If God did it halfway through the 1800s, couldn't he do it just part of the way through the 2000s? Notice what the Bible says. The Bible says that Jonah returned to the Lord and he believed God. Look at what he said in verse 7. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came in unto thee into thine holy temple. You know what that means? He's believing God is going to do it before he says it, before it happens. Verse 9, he says, I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that that I have vowed salvation is of the Lord. That was his prayer in the belly of the whale before he got out. Anybody can thank God after the fact, but here he is reciting what he prayed while he was in the belly of the whale. That's what God wants us to have, is believing prayer. Now, one of my favorite verses in all of Hebrews is when the Bible says that these died not having received the promise. What? Abraham and Sarah died not having received the promise. What did God promise them? The seed would be as the sand of the sea and as the stars of heaven. How many did they have? One in Isaac, another in Ishmael, but one in the promised seed. One. One. But it said these died not having received the promise, but believed them and embraced and were persuaded that these things were so. So watch. If it doesn't happen in my lifetime, I want to see it happen in my kid's lifetime. If God doesn't work mightily now, which I'm praying and preaching and believing that he will, I want him to work after I'm gone. And shouldn't that be the desire? So many times parents will say, I had so little when I was growing up. I am so burdened that my kids have more than I had when I was growing up. And I think there's a danger to that. But boy, what do we need? We need some parents that will say, there was such little spirituality when I was growing up. I want my kids to go farther than me spiritually. That would be a right prayer. And there's no danger in that. Now watch what the Bible says. He returned to the Lord. There's a return to Bible precept. That's what can save America. Number two, a renewal of believing prayer. That's what can save America. But look at what the Bible says in Jonah chapter 3. I love Jonah 3. Notice what it says in verse number 1. And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying. How many of you are glad God's word comes the second time? How many of you are glad for the second chances? Oh, I so am so glad. Hey, he says, the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. Now, he said in verse number 2 of chapter 1, Cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But now, since Jonah's heart is right, and Jonah's heart is ready, and God has, has t tickled the belly of the Airbnb in which Jonah was staying, and had the... The, the, the fish vomit Jonah up on dry land. He said, go preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. Verse number three. So Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three 
day's journey. Now, as I understand that, that means it's going to take three days to either circumference the city or go from one end to the other or cover all the neighborhoods of it. Three days. Verse number 3, so Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh. Verse 4, and Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, and he cried and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. We know for a fact that Jonah was not a Baptist because he preached way too short of a sermon for a Baptist. (laughs) Boy, you start the countdown with Jonah and you start it and it's over. (laughs) My pastor's known for preaching a short message and sometimes letting out early. And I said, honey, honey, we got to get to church. If we're five minutes late, half the service is done. And Jonah was probably like that. Now notice what the scripture says in verse number four. It says he preached, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. I wonder if he said that over and over again. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And he looked at the soldiers up on the wall. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And he looked at the harlots in the red light district. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And he preached to the techie part of the city. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And he went to the bankers. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And he preached to the the king's court. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And he preached to the farmers and the tradesmen in the market. Over and over and over again he preached, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And when you read verse chapter 4, you you, you realize that's what he wanted. That's what he wanted. Some believe that Jonah had some relatives that had been killed and butchered and brutalized by these, these Ninevite terrorists. That's what he wanted. Now I'm not trying to get into every part of your life and meddle but I'm gonna. How many of us in the last three weeks have said things like, I hope they blow these terrorists to kingdom come? What they did was wrong, absolutely wrong, just like what they did on 9-11 was wrong, absolutely wrong. And justice does need to be served. But when Jonah preached, he said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Can you imagine what he looked like? The acids, the stomach acids of the whale had likely discolored his skin. Maybe caused his hair to fall out in blotches. Maybe caused his, 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 his uh, clothes to reek. And when he preached, he was a sight to behold. Maybe he was like that ugly preacher of of Kentucky. People came just to see him, how ugly he was. And then they listened to him, and he had an old grovelly voice. He probably had some problems with his voice because of being in this dark, cold place for so long. And he's preaching, yet 40 days. Are you listening to me on the back row? Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Are you listening to me up in the balcony? Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Over and over and over again, he preached that message again and again and again. Not a lot of Hebrew exposition here, folks. There's not a lot of great exegesis here. Now listen to me carefully. I believe in Bible preaching, and hopefully I've done a good bit of it this week. I believe in Bible preaching, but I've heard a great much about expositional preaching this in my lifetime, and yet through all of our expositional preaching, we still somehow have escaped a great revival. You know what we need? 
Watch it. Listen carefully. We need a return to Bible precept. Number two, we need a renewal of believing prayer. And number three, we need a revival of Bible preaching. A revival of Bible preaching. I'm not just talking about going down deep and staying down long and coming up dry. I'm not just talking about getting into the gems and nuggets, although I'm 100% for understanding what the words say. I'm talking about spirit-anointed preaching. I'm talking about Bible preaching that calls men to a decision and calls men to the altar and calls men and women to get right with God and calls men to salvation and calls men to repentance. That's what Jonah's doing. And Jonah over and over and over again preached the same message that, that was the preaching that God bid him. And it was God's preaching, and it was Bible preaching over and over and over again. Look what happened when he preached. Look at verse number five. So the people of Nineveh believed God. What? The terrorists? Uh-huh. What? The people that would butcher you and skin you alive? The people that would kill their, their, their opponents just as well as look at them? Yes. You, you see, sin has a shelf life. And there's a pleasure in it, and then there's a great big chasm of emptiness in it. I don't know if I mentioned it the other night, but I preached up in Thompson, Manitoba this summer in June. We were 11 hours north of North Dakota. And there are a lot of natives and a lot of, uh, uh, lot of indigenous people up there. There was a town about three hours away, as far as I can tell, from Thompson, Manitoba, where there had been a suicide a day for three months. Why? Because sin has a shelf life. And these people were at the end of the shelf life of their sin and their violence and their wickedness. So when a preacher came along who in all essence was half-hearted and preached, thus saith the Lord, the whole city turned to God. The whole city turned to God. Why? Because when there is a revival of Bible preaching, God works. Listen, when God, wanted, when God wanted a preacher to send the message of getting in the ark, he called Noah a preacher of righteousness. When God wanted to exemplify himself through his son, the Lord Jesus, he said, I have preached righteousness in the great congregation. Ecclesiastes, he says, these are the words of the preacher who's preaching vanity of vanities, all is vanity. When he wanted to get Jer the, the wickedness of Israel's attention, he sent a preacher named Jeremiah who was shedding tears. When he came into the middle of the end of the silent years, he had sent a preacher named John the Baptist. When he came, Jesus came. He came preaching righteousness. When, when Jesus sent out his disciples, he sent them out all over preaching. Don't minimize preaching to me, I'm not ashamed of being a preacher, and I'm not ashamed of calling people to preach. And I'm burdened that there would be some young men in this place and perhaps some older men who would say, Lord, I'm going to follow you. I believe that the time is short and that I don't have much left, and I've got to give my all to you. Who, what people, what city, what town, what nation, what county do you want me to go and preach to? Never before have we needed preachers like we need them now, and never before have we needed prayer warriors behind those preachers like we need them now. Now it's stunning to me, Pastor, that when a medical professional gets up and says we need nurses and doctors, nobody gives him a hard time. When a soldier gets up and says we need recruits for the army, we're low on recruits, nobody gives him a hard time. When an educator gets up and says we need teachers, we are low on supply of teachers, nobody gives him a hard time. 
But somehow when a preacher gets up and says, we need preachers like we've never needed them before, missionaries all over the world, we need missionaries. I go to Italy on a fairly regular basis. There are 60 million people in Italy and about 12 to 15 independent Baptist churches. And maybe 12 or 15 more reaching the military. That's like going from Maine down to Georgia and putting 12 or 15 churches. Would that be enough? We need preachers in Italy. We need preachers in China. We need preachers in Japan. We need preachers in Australia. We need preachers. And somehow when, when the preacher gets up and says, we need preachers, he's the bad guy. We need evangelists like we've never needed them before. I have a list of evangelists that I added two to this week that I'd never heard of. And from every little circle in our independent Baptist, do you know how long that is? 275. And 75 of those are pastors now doing itinerant work. Do you know how many evangelists there used to be at the turn of the century of the 1900s? 3,000. By the 1920s, there was 1,000. By the 80s, Phil Schuler said there were about 400. Who's going to fill the ranks of the evangelists? And somehow when the preacher gets up and says, we need full-time Christian servants, we need people who will preach the gospel and go the world over, somehow he's a bad guy. He's making preaching out to be more important than anything else. No, he's just calling for new recruits. And oh, how we need new recruits. I'm praying that there'll be some people here who do, do this if they don't do anything else as a result of this revival. They'll put the one request that Jesus called for to pray for on their prayer list. Lord, pray for laborers. Lord, pray for laborers. Lord, please send laborers. God used Jonah to turn a whole city that had well over 600,000 people in it to repentance. And do you know that in Nineveh today, today, they still celebrate his coming. Wow. You know why I believe there's hope for America and why I believe God can use you and me? Because God used Jonah and he saved Nineveh. A people that didn't deserve to be forgiven, he forgave. And a preacher that didn't deserve to be used, he used. And if God can do it for Jonah and for Nineveh, God can save America. Would you bow with me in prayer? Precious Father, you've been so good to speak to us all through the week. Would you speak to us tonight? Would you help us as a people, wherever you've spoken to us, Holy Spirit, to return to Bible precept, to repent of our drift and our wandering, waywardness, and come back to you. To return to believing prayer and just believe that you can and that you will work, even though the odds and the news seem to say it's impossible. And then, Lord, I pray that you'd call from our ranks missionaries, pastors, evangelists, full-time workers, and help those that surrender to look to the cross and look to you, Lord Jesus, and never, ever look back. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I wonder who would say tonight, preacher, God's convicted my heart about some area of sin where I need to turn back to the Lord. I need to look in the mirror properly tonight and turn back to the Lord. If that's you, would you slip up your hand as a Christian preacher? Pray for me. God bless you. Thank you. Good.
Thank the Lord for these. Question number two, I want to ask if there's anyone here tonight that would say, Preacher, God has convicted my heart about my need for believing prayer. Would you pray for me? I need to just simply believe God in prayer that he can and that he will work. I want to be a part of that. If that's you, would you slip up your hand right now? Amen. Amen. Is there anybody tonight that would say, Preacher, I don't know what it means. And I don't know how it could even work. And how God could even use me. But I believe God is touching my heart about surrendering to ministry. Whatever that means, wherever that will lead. If that's you, would you slip up your hand high right now? God bless you. God bless you. Praise the Lord. Is there anyone else? Preacher, I don't know what it means. I don't even know what it will look like. But I sense the Lord's touch on my heart. And tonight, I'm saying, yes, Lord, whatever you want, I surrender to it. Anyone else? Let's stand with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Lord, help us as a people to believe you, to return to you, and to undergird the one thing that you've chosen, the foolishness of preaching, through our prayer, through our faithful attendance and response, through our encouragement, through our surrender. I pray this in Jesus' name.